Good morning. It's Thursday, September 23rd. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Don't expect a national bill on police accountability anytime soon. After months of social unrest over the killing and harassment of black Americans by police, a group of federal lawmakers started working behind closed doors to draft police reform legislation. The goal was to increase transparency and collect better data on use of force. According to the USA Today, those talks just collapsed. They couldn't reach an agreement. The fate of this type of police reform now rests in the hands of state lawmakers, not D.C. So this morning, we're zeroing in on Colorado. The Atlantic reports on what we can learn from that state's police reform efforts. This reporting looks at a police confrontation with an Army veteran named Kyle Vinson. Maybe you saw the video back in July. Vinson was pistol-whipped, choked, and bloodied. The body cam footage was familiar, but the aftermath was different. The police chief apologized and quickly made the tape public. The officer was charged with assault and resigned from the force. The Atlantic explains how police reform advocates say the main reason Vincent's case played out this way is because Colorado's new law is working. Colorado enacted that law last year, and it requires officers to wear body cameras at all times and calls for prompt release of footage. It stiffened penalties for misconduct and exposed officers to personal liability if they violate someone's constitutional rights. It also allows victims of police violence to sue officers for damages. One of the state representatives who helped write the law in Colorado says more officers have been charged with misconduct and more officers are intervening or reporting bad conduct when they see it happen. This is all new and there are still problems in the state. But since federal lawmakers can't agree, Colorado could be a blueprint for other states and cities. Being a late-night show host means competing hard for the best guests and the biggest ratings. But last night, they all teamed up on something. The top shows all dedicated time to talk about climate change. It was a mix of jokes and calls to action. Trevor Noah took the news that warming is reducing the population of male turtles. And he just ran with it. At least life is going to be pretty sweet for all those male turtles, eh? They're going to be cleaning up on turtle tender. And yeah, it may seem like a good deal until they realize that they're going to be expected to perform all the time. Morning, turtle sex. Afternoon, turtle sex. Nighttime, turtle sex. They'll never have any time left to do whatever else turtles do. Jimmy Kimball asked people to think about what they may lose as the planet heats up. You like coffee? Half the world's coffee beans could be wiped out. So enjoy your morning cup of steam. You like chocolate? Same thing. Imagine a world where you you get a carrot cake for your birthday. It's a nightmare. Climate change could even lead to massive shortages of rosé. I don't actually know if that trade. I just want to see if the white women were listening. Yeah? (laughs) Stephen Colbert reminded us meat consumption has a massive carbon footprint, even the stuff we feed our dogs and cats. In fact, if American pets made up their own country, they'd eat the fifth most meat globally. Wow. Also, an all-pet country? I would like to live there, please. I'd willingly go through their rigorous immigration process, letting them sniff my butt and then cuddling. 
Samantha Bee, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon, James Corden, all of them played along. A former comedy showrunner convinced all these shows to coordinate. And this lines up with a bunch of climate events scheduled this week that are hoping to get the attention of world leaders who are gathering at the United Nations. Bethy Squires writes for Vulture. She stayed up late to see how it all turned out. And we asked her what she thought about it. She told us, as you might expect, some monologues worked better than others. And she liked it when the hosts mentioned solutions. Any information that feels like a potential light at the end of the tunnel is more useful than mm, doom and gloom naysaying. Like, we know everything's on fire. We are aware. We are on fire ourselves. Uh, So I appreciated all of the people who had, here's what you can do. Here's things that we've done. Here's what could be done to help. In 1978, Ted Kaczynski mailed his first bomb to a professor at Northwestern University. It set off a nearly two-decade-long FBI manhunt for the domestic terrorist that we would all come to know as the Unabomber. A few weeks ago, this story took on a whole new meaning for San Francisco Chronicle writer Jack Epstein. Something to remember, the Chronicle has been around for a long time, and it was reporting on the Bay Area through a spree of serial killings in the 70s. And especially in that region, the fascination with these killers continues. I mean, to this day, the San Francisco Chronicle receives tips about the Zodiac Killer on a weekly basis. So when Epstein, the Chronicle reporter, came across some old letters in his attic, he was unsettled when he realized who they were from. They were dated 1979 from Ted Kaczynski during the early days of his bombing spree. Back in the 70s, Epstein wrote a book about traveling through Latin America on a budget. It turns out Kaczynski was a fan. Kaczynski asked me for advice on finding a refuge in South America. He wanted a place where they were so remote that, uh, as he said in the letter, the nearest neighbor would be five miles away or farther. Epstein doesn't remember exactly how he responded. His guess is that he probably told him to go to Cholila Valley in Argentina. The area was sparsely populated, had a pretty moderate climate and beautiful forests. Kaczynski famously spent 25 years living in a cabin off the grid. He believed that people should go back to what he called wild nature, which is exactly what he did by living practically uh, uh, almost 25 years in a, a 10 by 12 cabin in, you know, uh, in a remote area of Montana. The Unabomber was eventually caught by the FBI in 1996. For Epstein, though, finding the letters all these years later reminded him of what life was like for people in the Bay Area during the 1970s, which he refers to as the heyday for serial killers. What the letters also brought back to me was the the paranoia that a lot of people felt because there were a bunch of serial killers in the 1970s that running around Northern California with impunity. You can read this story and other great local reporting in the Read Local collection every Thursday on the Apple News app. Betty Soskin has lived an extraordinary life. And on Wednesday, America's oldest park ranger celebrated her 100th birthday. During the Civil Rights Movement, 
She was an author, songwriter, and activist. And now she's continuing her activism at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in California. The park honors the lives of Americans who were not in combat, who supported the war effort from the U.S. Soskin has worked to broaden who is celebrated in that history. In 2014, Soskin told NPR images of Rosie the Riveter and white women building battleships were all missing something important. Well, that really is a white woman's story. Uh, Black women were not emancipated by the Second World War. We were working since slavery outside our homes. And so I I never did see, for instance, a ship under construction during that period. During the war years, Soskin dealt with racism and segregation. That may be one of the reasons that she's worked with the National Park Service to reveal untold stories of the black American experience during World War II. The park created a limited edition stamp for her birthday. It's the latest way of celebrating Soskin. Another is a fitting one for a person who spent so much time educating other people about forgotten history. A Bay Area middle school has been renamed in her honor. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.